Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear AI researchers chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will provide you with summaries and discussion about some of last week's most interesting AI news. And by the way, if you like that, we also have that in text form over at the Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.com. AI, easy to remember, uh, if you want to check that out. Uh, but we'll go ahead. I am Andre Karenkov. And I am Dr. Sharon Joe. This week, we will discuss self-driving car struggles, as well as how AI can help human trafficking. We'll talk about climate studies um, based on AI analysis, as well as take a look at how robots are patrolling for antisocial behavior in Singapore. Uh, and lastly, we'll have some fun news on dead-end streets, confusing uh, self-driving cars. All righty, so nice mixed week with some robots and climate and whatnot. Uh, let's dive straight in. So first up, we have our application uh, news, starting with uh, Waymo's self-driving taxi struggles with left turns and puddles, but it's still winning over some Arizona riders. So uh, Waymo has been doing a pretty small trial of this self-driving taxi service, basically Uber or Lyft, but the car that picks you up has no human driver. It's just a self-driving Waymo car. And they started this a year ago. And now CNN Business uh, went on a ride in the service and spoke with eight Waymo customers who have used the service over the past year. And uh, it's it's a pretty interesting article. They they go over some of the comments, some of the limitations, but also kind of showcase that in general people seem to like it and even prefer it to something like uh, Uber or Lyft. And as someone personally excited for this sort of thing, I'm I'm pretty glad to hear that. Uh, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a license, so. <laughs> Yeah, I have a license, but I'm, I, I would pre prefer not to drive if I can, especially mm -hmm. if it gets cheaper because of a sort of thing, which I'm, I'm guessing it will. Absolutely. I think it definitely will. It, ma it makes sense for it to be cheaper. The human is definitely cut out of the loop here. Um, I, I love how when you enter, there's a greeting that says, good afternoon. This car is all yours with no one up front. Uh, so you know, a very, I feel like they tested that of like the user experience person. It's like, let's make this friendly, uh, but also tell them that, you know, this is self-driving. No one, no one is in the, in the front seat. Yeah, exactly. And uh, looking, they have actually some screenshots uh, of the app and it, it really looks like uh, Uber or Lyft. It you looks know, exactly it, like it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it it's interesting. We have some details like that. Uh, it takes the trips take a bit longer because there's still some kind of limitations. Uh, they avoid taking uh, shared uh, turn lanes, for instance. So they need to take roundabout routes. Uh, so that takes longer, obviously, but if you're using this to commute or anything sort of non-essential, uh, which some of these people that were interviewed were, I guess that's fine. And you can just chill out and, you know, arrive when you arrive and work on your laptop. I love the strategy of avoiding, you know, difficult situations. For example, they also avoid uh, making left turns from a busy street into a neighborhood because, um, you know, it's... It, it's a little bit more of a difficult task for the self-driving car. So just taking an easier 
uh, route. And even if it takes a bit longer, um, I think is a great, safe approach towards rolling this out. And of course, if it's too much longer, I think people would maybe start to complain. But um, if that is upfront, which I uh, imagine all that information could be calculated upfront, uh, then uh, people and users will will not be surprised. And I, I think it's a great way to introduce self-driving cars safely uh, into a community. Yeah, I think this is a great approach of basically taking it slow, taking it careful. Uh, you know, I think uh, an accident, uh, especially a bad one, in this kind of early stage would be pretty bad in terms of, you know, making it much less appealing. Whereas having this run for a year without any major accidents definitely points to this being viable. Uh, and I think we are starting to expand uh, to some areas like the Bay Area. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's exciting to see that this is ongoing, that people are using it even in a limited area and perhaps we'll be able to use it in, in just a year or two, which I'm really looking forward to. Absolutely. And on to our next article, uh, how AI can fight human trafficking. So worldwide, there are actually 40.3 million victims of human trafficking, which is crazy. This is estimated by the International Labor Organization. Um, but a startup that's based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, called Marinas Analytics, uh, it has rolled out a set of tools uh, that are AI-based called Traffic Jam. Um, that has the goal of finding these missing people and to stop human trafficking and fight organized crime. Uh, they actually won the 2021 IBM Watson X Prize competition, AI X Prize competition, uh, oh, they actually won third place uh, in the 2021 IBM Watson AI X Prize competition for uh, $500,000. Um, and uh, this was launched out of the Robotics Institute at CMU, Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, what's cool is that they uh, comb through millions of online ads um, in certain hotspots, uh, particularly commercial adult services websites. And they searched for various vulnerability indicators um, for human trafficking. And they flag, you know, possible candidates um, for that. Uh, and so they can quickly, you know, identify, you know, possible victims of human trafficking. Yeah, I was pretty surprised to see this. I wasn't sure how AI could be beneficial here in general, but uh, this this was really interesting where they have this uh, vulnerability indicator. They have also, I think, something to help with a uh, missing person where you, it can use facial recognition to basically see if there's a match for some missing person instead of having to have people do it manually. And what else is nice is um, the idea here is not to have any sort of like automatic response. It's really just filtering and, and uh, highlighting some things that then, uh, you know, uh, professionals, crime fighters can then review. And it makes uh, the process much faster, which, you know, seems like definitely something that Zumbi is needed given the scale of the problem. 
Yeah, for some quantitative numbers on that point, um, they claim that in 2020 alone, Traffic Jam, that AI system that they put out, had saved 70,000 investigative hours. Um, and the year before, 2019, they actually identified 3,800 victims of trafficking, which um, is 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 large uh, and, and impressive, both those numbers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see this and see such a you know, obviously terrible problem that actually is, is getting a lot of benefit from AI, it seems. And uh, I'm often happy to see AI not just making a dent and, you know, benchmarks and whatever, but actually being used in the real world in uh, new ways. Uh, so it's, it's very nice to see this for sure. And on to our next article, don't go... And on to our next article, going on to some research, we have something that's uh, a bit similar, actually. We have this article, AI analysis of 100,000 climate studies reveals how massive the crisis already is. And this is from Science Alert. So uh, there was this paper in Nature uh, Climate Change titled Machine Learning Based Evidence and Attribution Mapping of 100,000 Climate Impact Studies. And the idea here is that has been an exponential rise in the number of papers being published uh, in, about climate change, uh, the scientists here explain. And so it's, it's getting harder and harder to basically keep track of all of it, right? Uh, in terms of just, you know, getting a global view of the state of the research. And so here they used AI to sift through all of this uh you know, published climate science and uh, had this deep learning language analysis tool based on BERT to identify and classify this, you know, 100,000 scientific studies and basically uh, find some kind of high level uh, findings as to where, what regions have sort of more study, which ones have less and stuff like that. So yeah, pretty, pretty interesting. I think it's really cool to look through um, papers and scientific studies to to identify geographical uh, analyses based on where things are published and uh, where uh, where things are studied uh, as well. Um, and I think this is a great way to help use AI or use machine learning here to synthesize uh, all that information because now we have too much and they call it big literature. Uh, and I find that that pretty funny. Um, so, I mean, this is, I think this is a great way of tackling this space as well as other spaces in terms of just keeping up to date and getting a sense of what is here, literally the global picture, but what is here, the bigger trend and bigger picture um, uh, based on all these small studies that might be more regional and local. Exactly. And I think uh, this is not uncommon in other fields. I think we are called meta-analysis papers. So or survey papers, yeah. Or survey papers as well, yeah, where you crunch a bunch of stuff together. But I guess the difference here is that uh, usually those have to be done by people. And when you have 100,000 papers, that's, that's not doable. And so they actually say uh, directly in their paper that, you know, uh, traditional assessments 
are more precise in terms of not having any mistakes, whereas a machine learning assisted approach is doing more of a broad summary of a lot of stuff, but is more uncertain. So you get a kind of a rough, slightly inaccurate or maybe uncertain view, but you get it pretty globally. And the conclusions are are pretty uh, impressive. Also, that you know, according to a study, eighty percent of global land area already shows trends in temperature and precipitation that can, at least in part, be attributed to human influence on climate. Right. So that's you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> number and uh, probably not necessarily surprising, but still. It's good to see such a concrete sort of um, estimate on where we already are seeing effects of climate change, which is uh, only going to get worse <laughs> in the coming decades. Andre says with a laugh. <laughs> I have a sad laugh knowing no, no, that okay. we'll, we're just, we're just going to wait around. It's going <laughs> to it's inevitable and we're just going to live through all of it. Uh, we we will, I hope, live through all of it, especially since so much work is getting um, published in the space and just so much more attention is being given there. I remember just a few years ago, there was not that much work in the space at the intersection that is. And it's just very exciting to see how it's grown and now grown to a state where the survey paper needs to use ML to analyze all the different papers. And so um, I hope... You know, I hope the trend continues towards that. And I feel like I feel like there's much more energy around it now. Yeah, exactly. And uh, also uh, part of a conclusion here, it's it's nice to see that, you know, there are all these local papers about different regions like America, Asia, you know, South America, Europe that are exploring how things are changing and that no doubt will help with response and adaptation. And it also shows this paper some of the areas that don't have as much um, study going on. They have this uh, lack of evidence in some studies because the locations are less studied. So that points to some areas where uh, there could be more uh, research done and that also, uh, I, I hope, will help kind of navigate and uh, direct researchers. Right. And on to our next article, uh, Google researchers explore the limits of large-scale model pre-training. And this is in a uh, paper by Google Research uh, titled Exploring the Limits of Large-Scale Pre-Training. And this is aiming to look at what are um, what what's that relationship between the performance on upstream uh, and downstream tasks? So upstream, uh, I reckon here is the main task that the model is learning uh, towards and downstream is like, oh, hey, given given that we've trained the model um, on on this great upstream task, what are some downstream effects that we could use the model for uh later on um and they do a pretty extensive study um and the conclusion is um actually one that is a bit more counterintuitive uh for for some and it's that you know scaling actually doesn't lead to a one model fits all solution uh and uh they basically propose that um there is there are different checkpoints that'll perform best on possible downstream task. Um, in particular, there is not a single best checkpoint out there for 
every downstream task. Uh, and I think this is, um, is very much against the, I would say, common narrative now, which is that, you know, we're going towards the one awesome model fits all. We will use it for all embeddings um, and all representations and use it for every downstream task we'll have. Um, and, and this is kind of, this is challenging that a bit. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because this is kind of a timely paper in a sense where even going to the early days of deep learning, right, uh, a big part of why it was so powerful is that you could pre-train uh, a big you know, neural net with a lot of parameters, uh, lots of computation on some big task. We have a ton of data. So you can, for instance, do object classification. You just have images and you say this is a dog or a cat or whatever, and you have like a million of those. And once you train on that million, you have some weights in your model and you can still use that for other tasks like... Uh, I don't know, predicting if it's night or day or, or doing facial recognition, things like that, that are not the original task. So that's the upstream downstream. And here they have, you know, 5,000 experiments or something on kind of newer versions of this that are popular recently uh, with parameters ranging from 10 million to 10 billion. So that's <laughs> the large part where now the models are, are growing and have been growing for a few years. Uh, so yeah, I think it's uh, the trend in AI has definitely been just make the models bigger and bigger, make the data bigger and bigger, and then magically, you know, whatever else you care about uh, besides this original pre-training objective will also do better. And here, yeah, they, they show that basically it, it's not that simple. You can you can definitely be smarter about how you train or or where you where you look. Uh, so yeah, I think. Definitely interesting, a bit more of a nerdy side. So maybe uh, anyone less uh, technically inclined uh, may not be excited. But personally, I found this, this pretty interesting. I find it really interesting. Um, and especially that, you know, Google's publishing it because I mean, well, one, I'm not surprised that they're looking into it because uh, it's definitely a big question for them. They've come out with TPUs. They're like... We're, we'll scale things as much as we can if that really will give us the gains we need. Um, so it, it makes sense that they've come out with it. Um, the conclusion from them is it is uh, interesting. I would have been even more surprised if it was OpenAI who said such a statement <laughs> since I think um, it's a little bit of their spirit to to go for uh, the large scale uh, and, and scale with numbers. Yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, OpenAI did do some similar research with, uh, I think, discovering the power laws of uh, model sizes. So they did some of these trend lines. I don't know if they compared uh, upstream and downstream. Uh, but this also showcases that, you know, this is a very expensive paper to write. I don't even yes. know. 5,000 experiments with like gigantic models that's probably millions of dollars of compute uh, yes. easily. So it's it also shows kind of the power that industry has now in, in making certain types of research that can only be done in uh, industry. But luckily, industry right now, at least Google, Facebook, etc., are publishing a lot, and so it's it, it, I think it's still uh, for the most part beneficial to academics and academia and. Uh, not really a problem, but it's interesting to see that industry can 
can do some of these things that academia could never pull off. Yeah, were we just talking about climate change, though? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. And on to some other uh, articles that aren't researchy, that uh, I think are a lot more maybe close to real life. We have this one article, a new robots patrolling for antisocial behavior causing unease in Singapore streets. Uh, so the uh, Home Team Science and Technology Agency in Singapore has been releasing this robot Xavier on a trial to see uh, kind of if it can basically do surveillance, basically look around itself and see uh, if it can detect any sort of behaviors that are deemed uh, antisocial. So that includes uh, smoking, uh, littering, um, various uh, different things, also uh, doing things like social distancing or, or putting uh, bicycles on footpaths. And basically the idea is it can alert its command and control center and, and display, display some sort of message. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see this happening. Uh, it, it seems like it's a little, you know, a little dystopian, but maybe not too bad yet. Yeah, I am uh, uh, both surprised and not surprised that Singapore is the one rolling this out because they do like their rules, like littering has uh, massive consequences, chewing gum, that kind of thing. Um, though I can see how it, especially for newer behaviors, it's even... It just feels like a lot to ask for. Oh, social distancing or something, something that feels like, oh, I, if I messed up and it said I wasn't exactly six feet apart from this person, I was, you know, five feet, 11 inches. Will I get, will I get in trouble? Uh, and so I can, I can see how that can sow some unease among, among the people. Yeah, I think, uh, it, it seems early on of this trial, so I'm assuming we don't want to get too aggressive yet, but it does speak to, I guess, aspirations. Uh, just to describe the robot a bit, this one is not cute, like many would discuss. <laughs> it has this like four-wheel base, uh, you know, kind of like a small Jeep, and then it has this uh, kind of uh, body with a screen on it, and then kind of like a weird top uh head with a camera that can see 360 around it so yeah it's it looks a bit like you know a robot police patrol uh and it it's similar actually to things that are being developed in the u.s with things like nightscope that also are meant to go around and patrol and, and detect things but yeah i think as a it, it seems like generally a trend and uh, we might expect to see more of these sorts of things out and about uh, in the coming decade Yep. Um, <laughs> uh, on to our next article. Uh, are under-curated hyperscale AI datasets worse than the internet itself? Uh, and this is an article about the paper, Multimodal Datasets, Misogyny, Pornography, and Malignant Stereotypes. Uh, so a group of researchers have basically warned about the uh, growth uh, of AI training data sets um, and 
how, especially the super, super large ones and how they are propagating basically the worst aspects of the internet. Um, they have all these, you know, problematic features that have not been removed. Uh, when now, you know, online platforms are starting to remove a lot of these problematic pieces of content. Um, so the new stuff doesn't have it, but the old data sets that we're training on do. Yeah, so it's something that's kind of been known for the last few years for sure, but this really, this paper kind of points it out and studies it more carefully. And it's it's a little bit shocking in some sense because uh, it does describe how the authors had to themselves kind of go through it and detect some of the really bad things. Uh, and if you look in the appendix, you know, there's a lot of explicit images, right? And they even say that there are, um, you know, explicit images of pornography, there's malignant stereotypes, racist and ethnic slurs, and other things. Um, and uh, yeah, and this is pretty normal for AI data sets because we have these massive data sets, 400 million images that can really only be made by basically scraping the internet, just covering stuff. Um, really not quite at random, but I assume without too much, um, you know, assessment. So that's the consequence of this kind of a paradigm is the data sets do have a lot of uh, objectionable content. And as a result, the models we train encode a lot of bias, uh, like the stereotypes and so on, as we've seen already. So yeah, very good study to just point out how bad it is and maybe point towards doing things better, hopefully. In particular, the uh, work actually looked at a, a recently uh, introduced data set for CLIP uh, called Lion 400 million data set. Uh, and so it's a multimodal data set, you know, has text and image pairs to help with uh, the clip AI model um, that can, you know, create an image or find an, sorry, find an image based on text um, and is, is modeling that multimodally. Um, and unfortunately, there's an example of this female astronaut. Um, and with the Text query, this is a portrait of an astronaut with the American flag. It gets a similarity of 0.27. Whereas when it with the text query, this is a photograph of a smiling housewife in an orange jumpsuit with the American flag. It has a similarity of 0.331. And so just a higher similarity, a cosine similarity score. So, you know, obviously not, not, not ideal there and um, kind of, surfacing the fact that um that uh the you know the housewife or the that that image and stereotype of of women is is a bit stronger yeah and uh it's also it has some really kind of if you look into the index there's some very explicit not quite explicit but they have blurred photos of explicit things and they have this result if you turn, there is a safe search option to avoid some of the things, but if you turn that off, if you just enter big, uh, oh you God. get a lot of, yeah, these options are not safe big for work. Big eggplants? <laughs> um, 
that would be a good one if if that was most of it but oh, uh, yeah i don't i don't want to i don't think i want to say any of no, these <laughs> we're not going to say any of these <laughs> yeah no anyway it, it, interesting paper and and hopefully will push the field towards you know do, doing better in this regard right and to move on to our last article in the fun section, where it's not quite so serious as the prior few, we have Dead End San Francisco Street plagued with confused Waymo cars trying to turn around every five minutes. And this is from the uh, San Francisco Chronicle, I think, or, or CBS Local or something. And yeah, it's, it's a pretty funny story. There's this quiet neighborhood in San Francisco that now has a ton of traffic from these self-driving Waymo cars. Uh, and so people living there describe how kind of all day there's these cars coming there and just it's a dead end. So they come in, take a multi-point turn and head out. And apparently, you know, there can be up to 50 cars in a day. <laughs> so it's, it's every five minutes. So yeah, maybe the robot taxi dream isn't that near i don't know i'm just like update your model <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of funny the waymo spoke spokesman said that they are doing this because of road rules so apparently you can't take uh u-turn now so they have to do this weird thing uh which is a good excuse i suppose but uh, still weird, and I think humans uh, presumably would would handle this better. Right. I mean, it is for the sake of safety, uh, in a sense, because I I can imagine you know U turns can be um, unsafe in in certain situations. But it is it is pretty funny that this is happening, though it it is unfortunate that it is disrupting people from sleeping in that. Uh, in that neighborhood and it's been going on for like eight weeks too yeah. <laughs> uh okay. yeah yeah i i mean the quotes are hilarious it's like i noticed it while i was sleeping i woke to a strange hum and i thought there was a spacecraft outside my bedroom window <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely a funny case of like ai being wacky you know uh you know, another person said there are fleets of them driving through the neighborhood regularly. And these people have talked to the drivers. This is still a better face about drivers in these. And they don't have much to say. They're just saying <laughs> that it's this way and they're just sitting there letting it do its thing. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, it's good. Waymo is in test phase in itself, I guess. It's just funny because it feels like we unleashed an RL agent, which might very well be true. But like, you know, the wacky RL agents and some of the Atari games, they just do really weird things that humans would never do when playing a game. And so it just feels like one of those is unleashed and we, we don't have it's interesting. We observe them and we don't have control fully over them in a in a way or the people on the ground don't. Uh, so so that causes this mismatch in expectations. Um, yeah, I wonder why so many cars are driving by this particular turn. I guess it's 15th Avenue, so maybe there's a lot going on there. But 
I don't know. That's a pretty ridiculous story. You know, 50 <laughs> in a day in one place. My guess is that, you know, if they can't do a U-turn, maybe this is the only way to go in here to turn around or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, so. it's, it's still surprising that so many, like, go through this particular route, I guess. But in any case, I guess, uh, hopefully for those people living there, this can be resolved soon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I hope so. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast. You can find the articles we discuss here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com.